Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with someone from the Trust for America's Health about public health preparedness. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend covers a number of topics, including the ongoing battle with opioid addiction in Franklin County, the student loan help announced last month by President Joe Biden, and children's mental health information from a doctor at Adam H. in Columbus. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with Jill Gores from the Star House in Columbus, which serves homeless youth and young adults 14 to 24 years of age. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Dara Lieberman, Director of Government Relations at Trust for America's Health. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what Trust for America's Health is. Well, we're a nonprofit, nonpartisan public health policy research and advocacy organization. We work to advance policies that support health for all people and communities. And you're out with, uh, this is actually something that you do annually and, and did well before the pandemic, looking at public health preparedness by state. Right. We've been doing a version of this report for for about two decades, looking at how our nation is preparing at the federal and state level for public health emergencies like COVID and natural disasters. And what are you finding uh, during these uh, rather turbulent times? Well, we found that uh, the nation continues to underfund uh, the basic public health infrastructure and workforce that we really need to be better prepared for the next emergency. You've kind of broken it down by state. How does Ohio rank among the states in this? Ohio is one of three states that actually jumped up two tiers in this year's report from our lowest tier last year to the high tier this year. There's some areas where Ohio improved and that uh, that helps their score. So we look across um, 10 indicators that we feel help uh, would help a state become more prepared um, across public health, health care, emergency management and other sectors. So some areas that helped Ohio in this year's report, the state joined the nurse licensure compact, which uh, allows out-of-state nurses to come work in the state during an emergency more easily. So we saw that used a lot during the pandemic when there were workforce shortages. Ohio also had a fairly significant increase in its public health funding, a 20% increase over the prior year. And the state has increased its public health funding for three years in a row. Are you seeing uh, big differences or do you look into, uh, you know, whether states that are run by one political party over the other do a different job in how they prepare public health in these situations? We did not break anything down by political party. I think there are some some reports out there that try to do that, but that's not the purpose of this year. Okay. You know, it's interesting here because uh, back in the, the very early days of the pandemic, our then health director, Dr. Amy Acton, was credited by a lot of people for putting it on the line and not holding back, even though it sounded a little bit like what she was saying was over the top to some people. I remember at one point, pretty early on, she said that Ohio could see 10,000 coronavirus cases per day. And that's back when there were very few. And that ended up happening. And uh, it seems like that kind of messaging from public health is really important when you look back over it. Yeah, uh, accurate and timely public health communications is really a critical role of public health. And we're learning more by the day about the impact of misinformation and disinformation and really how important it is to be be frank and and speak with the public about what we know and what we don't know. And, And obviously this was a rapidly changing virus and what we knew about it changed by the day as well. 
but it really did put public health kind of on trial and it failed in, in some people's eyes. I mean, there were, you know, state legislatures, including here in Ohio, that have tried to take away some of the, the power that the governor or that health departments have in issuing health orders. Yeah, we are seeing in, in numerous states um, attempts to limit the public, basic public health authorities, like making sure that children are vaccinated before they go to school, making sure that um, that public health has the authorities it needs to protect the public during uh, an infectious disease outbreak. But really, you know, part of the challenge of the last two years is due to a, a major un- underinvestment in public health. We haven't given the system, the tools they need to um, be able to detect a disease early, quickly, and contain it before it becomes a a pandemic of this magnitude. Talking with Dara Lieberman, Director of Government Relations at Trust for America's Health. In the event of another pandemic, or if this thing, you know, if there's another variant that just becomes even worse than anything we've seen to this point, do you think that public health around the country is going to be able to play the same role it has in the past, or is there going to be a lot more suspicion. What's your thought on that? Well, we certainly are not out of the woods yet with this pandemic, and we we can't let our guard down. I think we're entering a new phase where um, public health officials are learning how to uh, live with the disease. We know now that we're not going to eradicate it, most likely, but how can we best contain it? So we need to make sure that public health has those tools to be able to communicate with people where they are and reach across political divides so that we're better protecting every community. Is there still a sense that public health funding is something that is needed and uh, and will continue to grow, in, in at least in some of these states where it has been? Well, certainly. There, one of the um, things that we point out in this report is how little funding there has been for the basic public health infrastructure. So, uh, imagine we had a fire department but didn't give them a firehouse or didn't give them trucks or train uh, the firefighters. But that's really what we've been asking public health to do over the past two decades. So the short-term funding we're seeing for COVID response isn't enough to build and retain a workforce that has really been depleted over the past two decades. And it's so interesting when I look at your list of uh, states and, and how they're performing, if you look at some of the low-tier states, you know, you've got Places like West Virginia and Arkansas on the low end, but also Oregon, which I don't think you can find states that are so different from each other than that group. Yeah, there really was no pattern based on geography or any other factor, um, just based on a very limited number of data points that we look at. But it's really intended to give states a checklist of things that they can do. Um, We try to choose data that's really actionable, that that, uh, state policymakers as well as the public health sector, the health sector can uh, take steps to make uh, the state more prepared. And last question, is there any state in particular that stands out as, as kind of the model of how to go forward? Well, I, I think we've seen success stories across states in terms of uh, building partnerships um, with uh, community-based organizations like churches, like um groups that serve uh, populations that have been left behind typically. We need to continue those partnerships moving forward, not just throughout this pandemic, but so that we can be better prepared for future emergencies. And Dara, where can folks find this information online? Our report is on our website, tfah.org, for Trust for America's Health. Great. Dara Lieberman with uh, Trust for America's Health. Thanks so much for the information. Thank you, Dave. There are no words to describe it. 
the isolation, the boredom, the loneliness. If you're wondering where your teenage son or daughter's spirit went, you're hardly alone. The past year has been devastating, especially for them. But here's the good news. They might just find it again, playing high school sports. Workouts that stimulate, teammates and coaches that care, the sense of belonging so many of us have been missing lately. That's what school sports are all about. The sense of achievement is real, and the camaraderie is hard to beat. Coping with uncertainty is difficult, but school sports can help the teenagers in your family start feeling like themselves again. Encourage them to give it a try. High school sports, it's so much more than a game. This message presented by the Ohio High School Athletic Association and the Ohio Interscholastic Athletic Administrators Association. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Everyone out here is gambling. One pill can kill. It's the message the Drug Enforcement Agency is sending to college students. How the state of Ohio is working to end the opioid crisis. Plus, beating the stigma. What parents can do to keep a closer eye on their child's mental health. And National Minority Donor Awareness Month is coming to an end. But one fitness instructor is beginning a major celebration. You can be a part of that. We will tell you how. Good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us here on Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. A new initiative from the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, is revealing how drug networks are, in their words, flooding the U.S. with deadly fentanyl, and that does include our state. In Franklin County, data released from the coroner's office shows overdose deaths from fentanyl increased between 2017 and 2021 by 13 percent. This past spring, the accidental overdose deaths of two Ohio State University students put this issue of fentanyl use in college students in the spotlight. And right now, Ohio State students are back on campus for the fall semester. Well, this year, the university started a new drug and alcohol prevention program that promotes health and safety. You know, the reality is there are hundreds of families impacted by fentanyl deaths in our state each year. One Central Ohio family is sharing their story with 10TV's Lacey Crisp. It's not worth it. It's not worth the chance. Anthony and Jeannie Lafferty's son, TJ, was the life of the party. He'd come up and he'd just joke with you. Constantly. Constantly, every day. I mean, it didn't matter if you were sad, glad. He just, he, he was there. Yeah. He made you happy. Well, he was known for occasionally smoking marijuana with friends. His parents say the 31-year-old would never try fentanyl. But they had found over... 2,000 milligrams. 2,000 milligrams of fentanyl in them. Michelle Spahn is the assistant special agent in charge of the Columbus District Office of the DEA. Four out of ten of the pills that we're seeing that we seize that are submitted to our lab for testing contain a lethal dose of fentanyl. 
The DEA is warning that cartels are lacing drugs like Adderall and Percocet with fentanyl, all in hopes of hooking students. Students may take these drugs thinking it will help them study, but even one of these pills can kill. Back in May, Columbus Public Health and Ohio State safety officials issued warnings about possible Adderall pills laced with fentanyl on campus. That same week, police were called to a home on East Lane Avenue after a 911 caller claimed her roommates were overdosing. I just came downstairs and one of my roommates and two of her friends are passed out. 21-year-old Tiffany Eiler and 22-year-old Jessica Lopez both died of fentanyl overdoses in that incident. Two of 17 suspected overdoses on the same day in Franklin County. Eiler's dad opened up about his daughter's death in July. So she took her last breath. And that was it. So I never thought I'd see my daughter take her last breath. I thought she'd bury me. Rich Eiler says he didn't know there was a fentanyl problem. You know, that's not the world I live. That's not the world she lived in. But it's a world the DEA says everyone needs to be aware of today. And that's why it's important for parents to have this conversation with their kids, not to purchase anything on the street because you don't know what it is. It's like playing Russian roulette. Spahn explains the DA confiscated enough fentanyl in the U.S. just last year to kill every American, just like TJ, Jessica, and Tiffany. Right now, the DEA says drug poisonings are the leading killer of Americans between the ages of 18 and 45. The warning now, one pill can kill. If you think you, you, you want to try it, I'm just telling you now, go hug your mom and dad because it's going to be the last time you're going to see them. In Columbus, Lacey Crisp, 10TV News. Ohio is making it easier for families to get access to affordable drug addiction treatments. State finance experts estimate that opioid misuse by a single family member can cost up to an additional $35,000 per year. It's why state leaders launched the Recovery Within Reach program. With this campaign, Ohio's financial advisors will be taught to, ta to spot the warning signs and will realize that the people affected by opioid addiction are not always those who have the substance use disorder. The new program will extend financial education to experts and those impacted by substance abuse disorders. You can find resources at recoverywithinreach.ohio.gov. President Biden announced a sweeping plan to help Americans pay off their student loan debt. Biden is extending the repayment pause through the end of 2022, as well as forgiving up to $20,000 in loan debt for qualifying borrowers. No one with an undergraduate loan today or in the future, whether for community college or a four-year college, will have to pay more than 5% of their discretionary income to, re to repay their loan. That's income after you pay the necessities like housing, food, and the like. You currently pay 10%. We're cutting that in half to 5%. People can start, uh, finally crawl out from under that mountain of debt to get on top of their rent and their utilities, to finally think about buying a home or starting a family or starting a business. Okay, here's what it takes to qualify for the $10,000 forgiveness. Make $125,000 or less a year and have those student loans that are federal. Plus, if you are within that income range and also received a Pell Grant, you can seek forgiveness for up to $20,000 off of your loans. Some Ohio State University students are already responding to the president's announcement. 
Well, I'm taking about uh, 25 to 30K a year in loans to be here. And coupled with my loans from undergrad, I plan to be over $100,000 in debt when I graduate. Um, and so, I mean, 10K off, it's not changing anything dramatically about my life situation. So I've racked up a lot of debt, and it would be a huge financial blessing to like get rid of at least even a little bit of that. The Congressional Black Caucus, which is led by Ohio's 3rd District Congresswoman Joyce Beatty, are also weighing in on this loan forgiveness plan, saying it will provide much-needed relief to black borrowers. The Congresswoman and the caucus pointing out that debt keeps black borrowers from building intergenerational wealth. Meantime, U.S. Senator Rob Portman does not believe President Biden's forgiveness plan is going to help. In fact, he sent a statement to our newsroom saying it's unfair to those who already paid off their debt and those who did not get to go to college. Well, whether you agree with that plan or not, there are some questions about how it's going to work. Casey Decker with our Verify National team explains whether you need to do anything to make sure your loans are forgiven. President Biden just announced a plan to wipe out a chunk of student debt for millions of Americans. Broadly speaking, people making under 125 grand a year can get 10 grand in student loans forgiven. But a big question that we've gotten from several verified viewers, do I have to do anything to get my loans forgiven or will this happen automatically? Well, the Department of Education says it'll be automatic for about 8 million people whose income data the agency already has on file. That's most likely to be the case if you're already on a repayment plan that's based on your income, since the department already has your info to make those calculations. For everyone else, there will be an online tool where you can input your financial information. Not sure if you fall in that 8 million? That same tool can help you figure it out. So when will it be available? All we know right now is the department says, quote, in the coming weeks and definitely before the end of the year. But you can get notified when it goes live by signing up at ed.gov subscriptions. In the meantime, all federal student loan payments remain on pause through the end of 2022. And that eventually loan servicers like Nelnet will update your balance to reflect the canceled debt. One more thing, this only applies to federal student loans, meaning if you have private loans, those aren't forgiven at all. With your Fast Fact, I'm Casey Decker. And don't forget, if you have something you'd like us to verify, contact us on social media or send an email to verify at 10tv.com. The general election is just two months away. The race for governor and the U.S. Senate will be the main focus in our state. A new poll shows the Senate race is a close one. The survey conducted by Emerson College polling shows Republican J.D. Vance is ahead of Congressman Tim Ryan by three points among very likely general election voters. Ten percent of those surveyed say they are undecided. And in the race for governor, a Trafalgar group polls has current governor Mike DeWine, the incumbent in the lead. Polls show DeWine is ahead of Democratic challenger Nan Whaley by about 16 percent and about 10 percent of those surveyed there say they are still undecided. Up next this morning, an update to a 10 investigate series caught in the cycle. A teen foster child is accused of stealing a car, then hitting and killing a Groveport Madison woman. What happened that could bring answers to her family? And it is a stressful time for students and their parents. We're tackling mental health challenges at the start of a new school year. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices. 
You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Roxanne Watson is on a mission. Hello, how are you doing today? She wants more people to register as organ, eye, and tissue donors. Are you an organ donor? Yes, I am. Yay! My goal is to sign up the most people in the United States. <laughs> what drives her? Roxanne's own life was saved through the gift of a heart transplant, made possible by an organ donor. I decided that day that I was going to devote myself to the cause of organ donation and signing people up and honoring my donor by doing that. Now she's back to health, and she's a powerful force, helping to save lives every day through her work. Imagine what you can make possible by leaving behind the gift of life. Eight people can be helped with the major organs and up to 50 people can be helped with a little bit of everything and when you think about it that way that you could help that many people it's amazing it really is learn more and sign up as an organ eye and tissue donor go to organdonor.gov a message from the u.s department of health and human services health resources and services administration this is columbus perspective on the fan back to tracy townsend courtesy of 10 tv Mental health is top of mind as children head back to school. Some parents say they struggle with conversations about mental health, and they're really looking for answers to know perhaps when is the right time to start the conversation and what do you say. 10TV's Kiana Dichess went to a mental health expert for some answers to help beat the stigma about addiction and recovery. We went to Dr. Amina Kamavor. She's the vice president of advocacy and engagement for the Alcohol, Drug, and Mental Health Board of Franklin County, also known as Adam H. What types of behaviors will let you know that your child has a mental health problem? Behaviors could look like uh, eating more or less than they used to, sleeping more or less than they used to, possible behavioral changes at home uh, or at school, like in the classroom, uh, academic performance changes. How can you help children deal with mental health challenges, especially as the school year starts? Communicating with your child on a regular basis, you know, to and from school, extracurricular activities, learning how to have difficult conversations that, um, you know, over things that could be happening in your child's life, staying in touch with their teachers, their education staff, their coaches. How do you know when it's time to reach out for help from a professional for your child? It's really important to just trust your instincts. You know your child, be observational about how they're experiencing their world. You know, what is it that they may be going through right now? Have they recently suffered a loss? Are they processing um, a breakup? Are they processing um, a friendship that maybe, you know, didn't go the way that they had intended? Are certain age groups more vulnerable when it comes to mental health challenges? Mental illness can, you know, start to show uh, in early childhood as well as those teen, very formative years, uh, most notably the age group of about 18 to 25 years old. But mental illness and addiction does not discriminate. So no one gets out of this, right? Um, this is something that could happen to any of us at any given time in our life. What should you do if it appears your child has turned to substance misuse to cope with mental health challenges? Just take a breath. <laughs> First, take a beat and kind of process what you suspect is actually happening in 
and doing some of those observational uh, cue checks. You know, what is your child experiencing in their life right now? Is there genetic factors that may be contributing to this uh, suspected use? Uh, and in addition to that, if you decide to approach your child, do it from a very non-judgmental, open, no blame lens. We want the best possible outcome of that particular conversation. Kiana Deitches, 10TV News. And 10TV has partnered with the Ohio Opioid Alliance to help beat the stigma surrounding mental health and addiction. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health or addiction, or you want to know more about the stigma surrounding them, visit beatthestigma.org for more information. Right now, Yelp is working to make it easier for women looking for abortion services to actually find them. The web-based app is introducing a new label that distinguishes between reproductive health care providers and what are known as crisis pregnancy centers, which have come to be known for having staff and volunteers who try to convince women not to terminate pregnancies. Yelp will have information that reads on those that says provides limited medical services and may not have licensed medical professionals on site. Yelp says its new system will help distinguish crisis and faith-based pregnancy centers from medical health care providers. The federal government is extending waivers for baby formula. Families who purchase formula through Nutrition Benefits or WIC will be able to continue buying substitutes for their regular formula. The plan was originally scheduled to expire in August, but now the USDA says it's going to be available through the end of the year, the end of 2022. Abbott says it will cover the costs for families who have to buy alternative formulas. Let's go now to a 10 Investigates update. Cedar Point is asking the Ohio Supreme Court to dismiss a lawsuit filed by 10TV and our sister stations in Toledo and Cleveland. We're asking for additional information from Cedar Point's police department about the sexual assault complaints the department investigated. Our reporting this summer uncovered how since 2017, Sandusky police have investigated 29 sexual assault reports tied to the employee dorms. Women we've interviewed said they felt let down by the park's response. Others told us they were discouraged to come forward. We filed a records request with the park's police department, but never heard back. Cedar Point's police department has sworn officers with full arrest powers who go through training with the state. 10TV's attorneys argue that because of that, they should be subject to public records requests. 10 Investigates also exposed problems within the foster care system in our state. We learned a teenage boy in foster care will face charges for a crash that killed a 58-year-old woman. Chief investigative reporter Bennett Haverly has an update on one family's journey and quest for accountability. 447, tough heart up. A teenage boy in foster care behind the wheel of this stolen Mercedes now faces charges, including driving without a license and aggravated vehicular homicide for this crash last October. Ma'am, stay with me. 4145 on Stay with me that killed 58-year-old Paula Kennedy, a tragedy her daughters say was preventable. It's hard. I think that it doesn't change that we still lost our mom. Um, I kind of feel like if we would have, or not we, but like the state would have intervened sooner um, in charging him when he originally stole like the first or the second car, one, he would have been receiving a consequence 
on just stealing a car and not killing someone. This is the third time that he's done it, and he killed somebody. You know, somebody who was very, very much loved in, in, in the community and was huge. And not only my family's life, but so many, so many people's lives. You know, and now she's gone because of, uh, uh, you know, Children's Services not doing their job. The fatal crash illustrates how even those with seemingly no connection to the foster care system can be directly impacted by those caught in its cycle. This crash marked the third time in a year that the teen had been caught driving illegally. The first happened in January when he was accused of driving through a school soccer field. That charge was dismissed over the summer. Then in September, he's accused of stealing a minivan from a foster home in Dayton. But a delay in charging him in that case meant he was assigned to a new foster home, where after a short stay, he's accused of stealing this Mercedes. Ten investigates also found numerous police runs dating back to the foster home where Franklin County Children's Services had placed the team, raising questions about the scrutiny given to foster care placements. That foster parent told us last week he's no longer fostering children. It's one of those things where it goes back to it's almost too late. I feel like we should have been asking these questions and monitoring these homes before big things happen. The family's hoping for additional policy changes so that their story doesn't become someone else's. Bennett Haverly, 10 Investigates. And to watch our previous reporting, go to 10tv.com slash 10investigates. Stay with us after the break. We'll tell you how you can get your groove on while helping other Central Ohioans. And it's hard to think about winter right now, but guess what? ODOT is what change they are trying to make to get more snowplow drivers behind the wheel. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from silent. Get back on your treatment plan or talk with your doctor to create a plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhpp.org. Everything's changed. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. And this is becoming quite the battle. The 2-2 pitch on the way. With the support of Major League Baseball, Stand Up to Cancer is fighting to end cancer. Hit high, hit deep. And we won't stop until... It's gone! Stand up for the 16 million people living with cancer in the U.S. and Canada. Join us at standuptocancer.org slash MLB. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. The Ohio Department of Transportation just got nearly $25 million toward road improvements. This round of funding will cover the U.S. 6 Connectivity Corridor and the Sandusky Bay Pathway. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says that means your trip to Cedar Point could get a little easier. The project includes replacing intersections with roundabouts. There's so many people who rely on this corridor every year. Commuters heading to work, uh, tourists and locals alike going to Cedar Point. I've had some fun explaining to my non-Midwestern friends what Cedar Point is and why it matters so much. Uh, Families visiting uh, nature preserves with with kids on the weekend. And yet for too long, that journey has been more difficult and more dangerous than it ought to be. In 2026, the project also includes a shared path, which will separate cars from pedestrians, making it a safer way to travel. All right. So if 
you like snow and you're looking for a new job, the process to becoming an ODOT snowplow driver, get it a little easier. You know, usually you need a commercial driver's license or CDL to apply. This year, you don't. ODOT's hoping to avoid a snowplow driver shortage by opening applications up to everyone who's 18 or older with or without that CDL. Now, if you don't have a CDL, ODOT says they can hire you if you're willing to stick with them for two years. So the hope is that if we can bring them in by August or September, then you're trained and ready to drive a plow, hopefully by December or January. Here in Ohio, we really start to see those heavy snowfalls between January and March. So the hopes is that we bring them in soon. Training takes about four to six months. You can apply by going online to transportation.ohio.gov slash jobs. Growth spurred by the Intel plant really is just the beginning. You know, there was a critical conversation this week about housing and creating strategies that will allow more people to experience that housing equity and affordability here in Columbus and Central Ohio. The mayor was very clear this is not just a city of Columbus issue and that build those number of units cannot just occur within the boundaries of the city of Columbus, but they need to occur regionally. And we need all of our regional partners to start to decide how they're going to build new units in their community, how they're going to add a diversity of unit types into their community so that you can have your residents aging in place. You can have young people come into your community. All the different ways in which we've sort of siloed housing and made it so that you don't have those options within individual communities. That's Erin Prosser, who's the assistant director of housing strategies for the city of Columbus. She was part of this powerhouse panel, which included Patty McClyman from Nationwide Children's Hospital and Otto Beatty III, who's the president of the Otto Beatty Companies. The conversation took place at the Columbus Metropolitan Club luncheon over at the Boathouse Restaurant at Confluence Park. We are certainly glad that you were with us today. Thank you so much and have a great week. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. From their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. You can catch a new edition this morning at 1130 on 10TV with Tracy. Here's more. Coming up on Face the State, presidential endorsement, student loan forgiveness, and intel. We are talking with the U.S. Senate candidates, so join us to find out where they stand on the issues and where they might agree. What you know about Narcan can go a long way to save the life of someone who's overdosing. Find out how you can get equipment for free. And then feeding Ohio families, especially children, we're asking lawmakers what they're doing to make sure no child goes hungry. Today at 1130 on Face the State. Our military service members volunteer to protect us in the most dangerous places around the world. They step up. And when they are severely ill or injured, returning to their families is only the beginning of their long road home. Wounded Warrior Project provides these brave men and women whatever they need to continue their fight for independence at no cost for life. So now it's time for a grateful nation to step up. Join us at findwwp.org. When I grow up, I want to be a baseball player. I will be the pitcher because they get to do something all the time. If your child is sick over and over again, it could be PI, a defect in the immune system that affects millions. Early detection can give children a chance to dream. Jeffrey Modell Foundation, 25 years of helping children reach for their dreams. Visit us at info4pi.org or call 1-866-INFO4PI. Long ago, you wouldn't think of galloping on a horse while doing calligraphy. And you wouldn't have attempted to ride your bike while typing a letter. Yet you think you can safely operate a multi-ton vehicle while texting? Behind the wheel is no place to multitask. 
if you want to BRB, drive now and text later. Lives depend on it. Visit stoptextstoprex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, Noise, and the Ad Council. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Tom and Levi. Tom is the smartest man I know. He's been a professor at two major universities. He's been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, he told me that he was having um, problems in his classes. I think one of the students had asked the question, and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. And he was telling them that he was doing it as a favor to them. But I think in reality, he just wanted to get out of there. Um, I was really starting to worry because I saw something was wrong. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me, and my love for him was just immense. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash stories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. has taken everything and everyone I've ever loved away from me. Everything. I blew my ankle out and I got prescribed pain pills by my doctor. If making my detox public is going to help somebody, I'm all for it. I just wish I would have had a warning. Opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth. Spread the truth. A message from Truth, the Ad Council, and ONDCP. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Jill Gores, who is the Clinical Services Manager for the Star House in Columbus. How are you? Very well. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what Star House is. Star House is a drop-in center that serves youth experience homelessness who are ages 14 to 24 years old. So we are open 24-7, and we provide a space for uh, youth and young adults to come. We have food. Um, they can prepare a meal for themselves. They can do their laundry, uh, use a computer. They can rest, just have a break from the streets. And we have a clinical team that they can meet with to work on the goals that they have. And you're located a little bit south of the fairgrounds in that area, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes, we're kind of, I, I describe us as being behind the intersection of uh, East Fifth and Cleveland Avenue. We're on corrugated way. So kind of tucked back a little bit. Okay. And uh, so, and I was looking at, at your statistics from last year. You served more than 800 youth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we typically see about 1,000 youth in a calendar year, undeplicated youth. Wow, that's amazing. So when you say that you're helping homeless youth 14 to 24, can you talk a little bit about who they are? And I know it's probably impossible to generalize, but just paint a picture of who these kids are and what has happened to them. Sure. Um, I think to generalize, I would say that they have been alienated in some fashion. So a lot of our kids, I think about half of our kids uh, have been in foster care. And then we get uh, we have a high con- higher concentration of LGBTQI youth, represented at a higher rate. And kids who have run away from abusive situations or have been put out by their families, uh, sometimes their families have similar struggles, and so they, when they turn 18, they don't have uh, any support to look to. Are these kids, uh, you know, do they personally see themselves in crisis mode, or are they sort of, you know, uh, of an independent spirit and forging on with a lot of bravery? You know, w- w- what is their makeup like? So 
would say yes to both of those. So it just kind of depends on the situation. They, a lot of them are in survival mode, and so they are focusing on just kind of existing, being able to make it from day to day, make sure they have a meal, make sure they have some space to be, um, try just to make sure that, you know, that they can survive. That's where most of them sort of hang out in that space. There are a few kids, a few situations, you know, they wind up homeless just because of a fluke or a roommate who backs out. And certain situations, they tend to remedy a little bit quicker. But for the most part, our kids, uh, they adapt to living on the streets. And the way I describe that is survival mode. Have most of them been on the street for a while by the time they find Star House? Uh, it varies. They are really good at looking out for one another. And so when they have somebody, when they come across somebody who doesn't know about Star House, that's they refer them themselves, and so that's their number one referral source uh, for sure. Uh, they're probably we, we have an outreach worker too that goes out to food pantries and libraries and social service agencies, uh, soup kitchens, campsites, and just tries to make sure that everyone who could come in contact with the struggling youth knows about Star House and can help them get to our facility. So when they first uh, become homeless and, and they they make this decision, or if it is their decision to to be out on their own, or do they end up sort of uh, navigating their way toward uh, homeless camps with with adults, or are they are they more solitary? What is their lifestyle like before they turn to help? A lot of times they do not gravitate toward adults. They're usually not interested in the homeless shelter. A lot of times they find those experiences intimidating and so when they have when they do camp it's usually with other youth so uh, and there's a lot of our youth who are homeless who couch surf and so they they try to have a network of people and stay on a couch until they wear out their welcome and kind of move on to the next place where they can um, find shelter and unfortunately a lot of our kids do have to um, engage in some unsafe or unsavory things in order just to secure a roof over their head or a meal talking with Jill Gores. She's the clinical services manager at Star House. What about the, the level of despondency, uh, suicide fears, or, uh, you know, uh, drug addiction, that type of thing? Oh, yeah. So the top two causes of death for our population are overdose and suicide. And so both drug addiction and mental health are very huge things that we deal with and try to address with this population. Um, Trauma is probably one of the number one things that we try to target, try to help with, because I don't know if you're familiar with the ACEs screening tool, it stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences, and it just kind of takes a look at some of the things that a person experiences, traumatic things they can experience in the first 18 years of their lives. And so there's 10 questions, and our youth, their scores average about 8.4 on that scale, which is extremely above average. It's pretty high. So they've faced a lot of childhood trauma in addition to the trauma of being on the streets. And so I, I always say I think probably 80 to 90 percent of our abuse that we serve suffer from a full PTSD diagnosis, which is just further complicates and makes their struggles more difficult. Wow. So when they go there for, you know, a hot meal and a shower and, you know, a place to spend the night or whatever, just to even just to get a few hours of uh, stability, I, I would imagine that at some point your hope is to try to move them toward, 
more sustainable help with the therapy and that type of thing, which must be a real challenge because I'm guessing they don't really trust anybody. No, they, they, they aren't very trustworthy. They've been uh, hurt. A lot of our youth have been hurt by the system and by adults in their lives, and so it takes a lot of work to um, build trust with them. And when they come looking for a hot meal and a shower, they're also looking for some human connections. And so we emphasize heavily the importance of being supportive and unconditional in our support and the way that, that they have a space where they can come and know that there are adults here who care about them. That goes a long way in building trust. And it's, it always surprises me how willing they are to get help with things. They're, they're ready. So many of them want things to feel differently. Some of the th- ways that you help, I mean, I was looking at some of the statistics, nearly all of them can get and do take advantage of, of transportation help that you offer them, as well as medical care. I mean, almost all of them. And then some even move on to uh, some some housing that you have available on the west side. Mm-hmm. Yes. We have <laughs> incoming youth right now. Uh, we've been kind of joking about the, the changes we're seeing as we start to serve more of a Generation Z crowd. Um, but they are pretty motivated and I think that youth being lazy because being homeless because they're lazy is definitely a myth. Uh, a lot of our youth are pretty motivated to make some changes and to try to get get on their feet. And so they do. They're they're eager for employment and for housing. And we, we've been really fortunate to have the Carroll Stewart Village available as an option for a lot of our kids over on the west side on West Broad to support a community with a studio apartment for just kids like the ones we showed. 62 units over there, and I guess uh, once they get in there as well, you help them with uh, employment, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, with a lot of things. Uh, they have numerous services on site, everything from uh, a legal aid attorney to mental health services and case management, um, social enterprise, with pedals that inspire. They, they try to offer as many services as possible to, you know, help our, kind of usher our kids into we touched a moment ago about the the drug addiction problem that, that these youth have. And the Ohio Opioid Education Alliance is out with this Beat the Stigma campaign. Uh, and I would guess that the stigma is an awful big obstacle with these kids. Oh, it really is. For our kids, the stigma is twofold. We have the stigma around drug addiction and then the stigma around homelessness. I think the, the tragedy of it is just that so many people kind of buy into those stigmas, and including our youth. And so we spend a lot of a lot of time and energy trying to um, help them see their value and see that they're more than their situation and they're more than, if they're addicted, they're more than their addiction and help them have just kind of a clear vision on that. They're amazing kids. They're resilient and they're generous and they're loyal. Like, and if you've got a kid who finally finds some stability, some some adults that they can trust, especially in a professional setting like that, you know, not just some stranger that is uh, being nice to them, and then who's telling them, you know, that these problems that you're finding yourself in, you shouldn't be beating yourself up over it. It's, you know, it's something that there are solutions and ways to get out of. It just must be a tremendous feeling that that they can garner from that, you know, after a while. Oh, right. That's definitely the part of my job that gives me goosebumps and sort of the thing that keeps us going is getting to watch somebody 
kind of move into that knowledge or that understanding where they start to see themselves differently and, you know, they start to get some healing from the things that they've been through and realize that, you know, it doesn't always have to be the way that it is. Things could get better. And, you know, that's what keeps us working, doing this work that's incredibly challenging. But it is a difficult climb. I mean, uh, you know, from what I read about addiction, uh, opioid addiction is just really difficult. Uh, one of the more diff- difficult addictions to beat. Yes. Oh, for so many reasons. That's true. Uh, it, the effects that opiates have on the brain and the withdrawal symptoms that come in a lot of times are using opiates, not because they want to get high, but because they're trying to avoid being in misery. Yeah, we work really hard. Our staff is all, all of our frontline staff are trained to use, use Narcan. But sadly, that's an important thing to uh, service for us here. But, you know, we kind of follow the stages of change model and whether they are willing and ready to get help and try to get clean or whether they don't want to talk about the issue at all. They think that they don't have a problem. They don't really want to change regardless of where they are. We're going to meet them with a lot of support and so that whenever they are ready for that change, whenever they want to take those steps, we're right here for them, ready to help them make it happen. Talking with Jill Gore's clinical services manager for Star House, which advocates for homeless youth, uh, 14 to 24 in Columbus. These days, it's so difficult. We're coming through the pandemic. We've got this opioid problem going on that's been going on for years now. Now there's affordable housing is just about impossible to find and it just seems like there's an awful lot of things that are stacking up against kids these days sure and when you look at some of the risk factors that push people toward addiction things like stress and trauma uh, i think i mentioned earlier that our youth score an average of eight on the aces screening scale which is a really high indicator of childhood trauma and like research is showing that kids or anybody who scores a five or higher on that are seven to ten times more likely to use illegal drugs and become addicted so it's sort of a perfect storm for a lot of our youth between the combination of the trauma they've experienced uh, life on the streets and the insane amount of stress that they encounter every day yeah it really sets the stage for some From what I understand, Starhouse started in 2006, and it was uh, at that time an Ohio State University project that you're still associated with, right? Right. So we uh, became our own entity in 2017, but the relationship between Starhouse and OSU has remained strong. The research that that started back in 06 continues like this. There's still research ongoing projects happening, and that team... Has, they have offices on site. They're here every day. Still a part of some really groundbreaking stuff. It's outstanding. So when kids uh, do come into the Star House, your first order of business, I guess, would be to meet immediate needs, to get a shower, to get a meal, spend the night maybe, and then mm-hmm. I guess just about anything could happen the next day. They might leave or, or stick around, right? Right, right. So we try to be as low barrier as possible, as low threshold as possible. So if someone needs to, is 14 to 24 years old and they don't have a safe place to live, a consistent safe place to live, then they can definitely come to Star House 24-7. Just hop in. They don't need to have ID. They don't have to sign up on a list or get a referral. They can just walk right in. 
and states that it's their first time here, and they'll get a tour of the facility and then a brief orientation over the rules and just kind of help them understand how to access the resources that we do have. And then they can do whatever they need to do. If they want to pick some, some noodles, they want to pick some dinner, they want to grab a shower, they want to take a nap, they want to check their email or watch a video on a computer, you know, whatever they need to do. They can also request to talk to a caseworker or a therapist it's outstanding i don't know how much you could address this issue or or uh, how much of a concern it is for you but with the recent u.s supreme court ruling it appears that someone who feels that they're in need of an abortion it's very difficult these days now to get one in ohio with the heartbeat law in effect it, does that is that going to have an impact on starhouse oh on starhouse as an organization the youth that we serve are definitely going to be impacted by that. Um, and in all honesty, in Columbus, Central Ohio, being able to access those services has been challenging anyway because the facility is closing down. So I know we've had a couple of youth that have had to travel uh, to different parts of the state for those services. Um, planned pregnancy is a uh, real thing for a variety of reasons that we see here with our youth. So I do expect that this is not going to have a good You know, we always hear about arguments at the State House about cases of rape or incest, and yet this is sort of the population where these would be the types who would be at higher risk of that than than the general population. Yes, that is definitely true, especially uh, young women. Uh, They are extremely vulnerable on the streets, and that is something that sadly, unfortunately, between Talking with Jill Gores, Clinical Services Manager for Starhouse. What about volunteers? Do you have uh, a lot of volunteers there, or are you in need of them? Oh, I think we always need volunteers. Volunteers, um, I don't know how many people realize this, but that is sort of the backbone Starhouse. We receive donations, and we have a great warehouse, and volunteers are the, the folks that come in and keep all of that organized and enable us to be able to provide you know, clothes and socks and hygiene items and stuff like that. Right. So we rely heavily on people donating clothing and hygiene items, and we rely heavily on volunteers to come in and help us keep it organized. And if anyone is interested in donating and finding out what our top needs are, it's always available on our website. Starhouse.us. Jill Gores again with Starhouse. Anything else you'd like to add? I think when it comes to stigma, the main thing I would like for folks to, to know and just trust them, maybe even for many folks, the first step in beating down the stigma is just trust that the, the kids you encounter and you hear about, are they're, they're really doing the best they can. You know, the, the ad that we see on television, the game show type ad, you know, where, where the contestants are saying hanging out with the wrong crowd is the problem and and some of these other things whereas it isn't the choices that people are making necessarily that are getting them into these issues not at all not at all it's it's that's the sad part too is a lot of a lot of things are uh, stacked against this population between the trauma and the trauma of life on the street the stuff they experience as children the genetics family history things like that really make it difficult for them to 
beat the odds. I've heard people respond to addiction and what kind of person, especially whenever kids are impacted, what kind of person could do that to a child, what kind of person would do that to her own baby, things like that. And I think that I always try to jump in and remind folks that the question is, that's not the right question to ask. The right question is, how powerful must addiction be to push somebody to these limits, you know, to, to these actions and these behaviors that cause so much pain? It's very powerful. From uh, looking at the website, it looks like you've been there for about five years. Are there uh, is there any particular story of an individual that you think fondly back on that can brighten your day when you think about how their life has turned around? Oh, for sure. Yeah, um, there was a handful of kids that we just kind of oh, we call them mission moments. You know, things that kind of keep us moving forward. And we were just visiting about this young man who was struggling with addiction, and he came in and he didn't really want to talk about it. He didn't really want to acknowledge it. Uh, we didn't even really know about it until we had to use Narcan when he had a had an overdose, and we just kept showing up for him, offering support, and working with him. And over time, he uh, we got him to detox. He, he engaged in treatment and graduated that, and moved on to an intensive outpatient program. And got housing through that program. And when he came back, just to kind of check in with us, it was. It was really, really cool to see how bright he looked. His eyes were bright. He was really smiley. You know, it's like the first time we'd seen him really happy. And he was making some good steps. And so stories like that definitely keep us going. With addiction, I also talk about it. Like, there are certain things that follow addiction. There's certain behaviors that follow addiction. It can be the stuff that people tend to think about or see on TV, the agitation, obnoxious behavior, dangerous risk-taking behavior, lots of lies and manipulation. And those behaviors, they, they travel with addiction. They don't travel with the person. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind, too. Like, addiction, it looks really ugly, but it, it hardly, it doesn't really look like the person at all. So that's another piece that's pretty rewarding is whenever you get to see somebody find some freedom from, from their addiction and you get to, get to see the real them. And like I said, these kids, are the most loyal, generous, um, kind-hearted kids that I've worked with before. Yeah, because you hear sometimes about how somebody who is uh, addicted will, they'll start stealing because they have, they need the money to continue to feed their addiction, and yet it might be the last thing in the world that you would normally expect from a person like that. Right. It's, it's not that different from the stories you read about people living you know, somebody losing their job and having to steal a loaf of bread in order to provide for their families. Because the, the urge to, to use and the urge that our bodies need food are really pretty similar. When someone is addicted, their brain sees their drug as a necessity, not as an option, because their body needs it. Their brain is telling them that they need it, and so they will go to great lengths and shame it. Jill Gores, she's the clinical services manager for Starhouse. Give us uh, the information again where folks can find out more about Starhouse. Oh, our website is the best place to start. It's uh, Starhouse, S-T-A-R-H-O-U-S-E dot U-S. Jill, uh, thanks so much for your time today and uh, appreciate the efforts that you're doing there. Oh, thanks for giving me the chance to talk about this. Mm-hmm. 
This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.